0: Uh, Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Luke chapter 3, and then in a minute or two we'll also be in Luke chapter 4. Our sermon series this fall is, Follow Me. That's Jesus' call to us as disciples, not just to believe, not just to trust in Him for salvation, but to follow Him into every area of our lives, wherever He leads us. So we're we're trying to discern what that means from Scripture, and we're going to continue on that journey this morning. Uh, over Memorial Day, Cindy and I were in one of our favorite cities. We were in Charleston, South Carolina, and we were walking down Market Street, and we saw some shops that we were kind of peering in the window, and I saw this T-shirt, and I was really bummed out. I couldn't buy it because the store was closed, but this kind of sums up my life. Um, I'll just let you read it for yourself, right? I saw, I think I was 17 when Jaws came out. Anybody else The first summer came out? Did you go and, go and see it? And I... And I watch it once a year, every year since then, to remind myself not to go in the ocean. So I I just don't like sharks. They're bigger than me, and they have sharper teeth than me, and I I figure I'd lose any confrontation with them. So I kind of stay in fresh water. But it's based on this kind of common adage that we have, this notion that what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. You've probably heard somebody say that to you, before, maybe your mom or dad said that when you were trying to not have to take a, you know, an advanced calculus class, and maybe they said, you know, if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you better. Is that really true? Uh, or is that just something we kind of toss around flippantly? And if it is true, what bearing would it possibly have on my relationship with Jesus? What would it mean to get stronger in Christ as I go along life's journeys? Would it, Would it actually mean that perhaps difficult circumstances in my life? Uh, maybe next to impossible circumstances in my life? Maybe incredibly disturbing circumstances in my life could actually be used by God intentionally to grow my faith? I mean, if God really wants us to follow him, why, shouldn't he make it really nice and smooth for us? If he really wants a bunch of people to come along, shouldn't he just kind of take care of all of our problems for us? It, could it be that there's something about this kind of human adage that's actually important for us to understand when it comes to our faith. I want to remind us of our theme verse for the entire series. It's also found in Luke's gospel. In Luke 6, our theme verse, Jesus is teaching. And he says this, a disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus is saying, you guys ought to be like me. Now that doesn't mean that our salvation is dependent upon how well we follow Jesus. Our our salvation is dependent upon his work on the cross and our trust and our faith in that work on our behalf. However, Jesus says there's a life to be lived and there's a a following process and I'm going to lead and you're going to follow and your faith needs to grow in the process. How does that happen? How do we become like the teacher? Luke chapter three, verses 21 through 22 and Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Perhaps here we will begin to find some of that answer. Hear the word of God. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Then Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, and this happens immediately after what what we just read, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, we shall worship the Lord, your God and him only shall you serve. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To Him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we love our our comfort. We love the security we think that it provides us. Lord, we we love uh, what we own, our wealth, what we've accumulated, what we we truly believe is ours and no one else's. Lord, we love the, the culture in which we live. Sometimes we we don't necessarily like what it says about us, but we certainly like living in, in such a wonderful country, even with the, the blemishes we have. It's, it's one of the safest and best places in the world. Lord, we love all that. Sometimes we idolize all of that, Lord, maybe more often than we would care to realize. Father, we, we want our faith to fall in line with our lives. We want it to be easy. We want it to make us feel good. We want it to serve us. Father, I pray this morning that you would either begin or continue to break that notion in our understanding, that we would not love the things of this world more than we love you, that we would not desire what is temporary while missing that which is eternal, that we would not believe a lie in place of the truth. Lord, these are hard words. They will more than likely disturb us at some point this morning, but we pray that that disturbance would be used by your Holy Spirit to grow our faith, to allow us to see your love for us and to allow us to see that that love moves us into tough places, not to harm us, but to feed us and to grow us in order that we might become more and more like our teacher, the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd forgive my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of your teaching this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Becoming like Jesus entails following our teacher into the maelstrom of testing with the confidence of a beloved child of God the Father. Uh, we're going to be looking this morning at, at the testing, the, the temptation of Jesus, but we need to do so in the context of what Scripture says about that testing and what comes immediately prior to that testing. Uh, you and I have, if if I'm, I'm sure we have already, even probably today, faced temptation. Uh, you maybe been tempted to lose your temper. You maybe were tempted to, you know, uh, say the wrong word at the wrong time to someone in your home this morning. Uh, We're tempted in so many different ways. And quite frankly, I think if we could wave a magic wand, we'd get rid of all these trials and all these temptations, and we would try to get more to a life of ease. And yet it's in that type of scenario where we do not grow, where there is no pressure, where there is no challenge for us to think deeper, to feel deeper, uh, and to go deeper in our trust of God. And so we're going to look at this notion of a maelstrom. Now, a maelstrom, if you go Uh, I know that's not typically a word that we will use in a sermon in a sentence, uh, but it's important to understand what it means. If you go to the dictionary and you look up the word maelstrom, you'll see the following definition. A powerful whirlpool in the sea or a river. Uh, The Merrimack River just outside of St. Louis is actually known for a lot of these whirlpools. And if you're not very careful and you're playing around in the Merrimack River and you're not paying attention, you could lose your life in one of the maelstroms. It can suck you down and it can drown you. But we, we take these types of circumstances and situations, and we turn them into word pictures for circumstances in our lives. We do this all the time. And so the second definition in Webster under what it literally is, is this, a situation of confused movement or violent turmoil. Now, some of you may be saying, wow, I didn't know that you were going to describe my life from last week, and when I came to church this morning. The, a lot of times, our circumstances tend to be a maelstrom, and so they tend to be turbulent, uh, or, and you might say, my life's in an uproar right now, or it's it's disarrayed it's chaos there's there's confusion and upheaval. oftentimes that describes our lives. but does God actually lead us to those moments not that we would continue to be confused, not that we would be harmed in any way, but that actually spiritually we might have the opportunity to go deeper in our faith, if the whirlpool is threatens to suck us under, and if we can't survive it alone, perhaps what God is showing is that there is another one who can protect us, that there is another one on whom we can depend, and that would grow our faith. So instead of running from these moments, instead of, you know, when I, when I come into, into these types of situations, I tend to hate them. I tend to, want to get away from them as fast as I possibly can. And I'm not suggesting this morning that as believers we ought to go looking for trouble, so to speak. But when we find ourselves in the chaos... When we find ourselves in these moments of trials, and these moments of temptation, can we see them for what they are in their totality and not just for that specific moment? If we're going to do that, we need to do so, and we have two observations in the context of our first observation, which is our identity in Christ. If you go uh, back to Luke chapter 3 and you look at these verses, it talks about how Jesus has just been baptized. And it talks about how he's coming out of the water and the Holy Spirit literally descends upon him in bodily form like a dove. And then the Father speaks. And the Father says this, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now if you've studied the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, let me ask you a question. Where does this take place? What miracles has Jesus performed already when this happens? What has Jesus done that he would receive such favor from God? Has Jesus raised anybody from the dead? Has he fed 5,000 people? What has he done to get God to say, with you, I am well pleased? What effort has he put forth to this point? Anybody answer that question? Louder? None. None. Thank you very much. That's exactly right. Jesus hasn't raised anybody from the dead. He hasn't changed water to wine. He hasn't fed the 5,000. He hasn't preached a sermon on the mount. He hasn't gone to the cross. He hasn't done any of that. Before Jesus does a thing, the father looks at him. He says, you are my son. And because you are my son, I am well pleased with you. The pure delight of God the father with his son. Jesus is yet to engage in what we would call the three and a half years of his earthly ministry. God is not patting Jesus on the back because of what he has done. God the Father is embracing Jesus because of who he is, his precious child. Last week, week before last, I went to, I flew to Denver to drive with my son in a rider pickup truck from Denver to Southern California. Uh, because he's like his dad. If he can figure out a way to save a nickel, he's going to do it. So he had some people pack it on the front end. He had some people unpack uh, pack it on the back end. But he said, we're going to drive it. And so I drove with him for two days out to his new home. And while we were there, I got to hang out with Nate and his wife Liz and my four grandchildren. And there are my four grandchildren on the screen. And one of them is when I somehow miraculously took them by myself to dinner and to ice cream. And uh, that the fact that the five of us survived that was actually quite remarkable. But the other picture is Avery's at the top and Valsey's down at the bottom. And I was walking upstairs in their new house. And I come around the corner Now, right on the corner, there's this really cool hutch kind of cabinet thing. And I open it up and I'm looking at it. And they walk by, and I look at them, and I'm like, you can fit two small children in here. This is really cool. So they're looking at it, and they say, Grandpa Tom, what's that? I said, well, that's where you guys are going to sleep at night. And they went, really? And I'm like, yeah, I know you guys will fit. Hop in there. And they jumped in, and I immediately stepped back and took that picture. Valerie's trying to fall asleep, and Avery's having a lot of fun. I said, isn't this so cool? you got a new house, and this is where you get to sleep. You should go tell your dad. So they go downstairs, and I get, I get to listen. I don't, I don't go down there. Dad, we saw where we get to sleep. He's like, oh, yeah, you saw your rooms? No, we saw the cabinet. Where, and, and Val's on the bottom, and I'm on the top. And I hear their dad going, what? <laughs> yeah, it's really, you should come up and see it. And he says, who told you that that's where you were going to sleep? Grandpa Tom. And I'm like, mic drop. I'm done. It can't get any better than this, <laughs> right? I've done what the grandfather's supposed to do, create absolute chaos and walk away. It was a beautiful thing. Now, why do I do that with my grandkids and not your grandkids? Why would I drive a third of the country, across a third of the country, to help those four children? What have they ever done for me? Not a thing. But they belong to me. They're mine. Through my son, through his wife. That's their identity. For better or for worse, they're in our family. That's what God says to you and me as children. You're not, you're not earning my love You couldn't earn it if you wanted to, but you get it because you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you're in the family. Brothers and sisters, we cannot face our trials and our temptations unless we understand and fully embrace with great joy who we are in Christ. We are beloved because of what Jesus has done. We've been adopted into God's family. So Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8 when he's trying to reinforce this truth. He says this, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's the notion of, of Daddy, Father. So Gabriella just said, said Dad this morning, right? How cool is that? Abba, Father. And how did you feel about that? It felt pretty good, didn't it? You're excited about that. How does God feel when we cry out, Abba, Father? He loves us. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs with Christ. Our identity is beloved children of God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that identity that empowers us to follow Jesus, even into the maelstroms of this life. So let's talk about that because that's our second observation. What are some of these storms? What do they look like? Well, here's Jesus. He's just come out of the Jordan. He's, he's been blessed and, and identified as the son of God. God has, God has put his stamp of approval on him. And then what happens? Immediately, he is led into the wilderness. Luke says Jesus was full of the Spirit. He returned from the Jordan River where he's baptized. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Mark's Gospel puts it this way. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan. And we know from the from the historical recordings of the Gospels that he went without food for 40 days. I had a, I had a friend, colleague in ministry one time that went on a 40 day fast. He didn't eat anything for 40 days. And on about Day 27 or 28, they actually had to start giving him a little bit of liquid, like with some vitamins in it. And by the time, and he was not a big guy to start with, and by the time he was done, he was emaciated. He, he had lost probably a third of his body weight. He had no strength. He, had, he, he, he couldn't think straight. He, he had a hard time fulfilling his responsibilities. It was absolutely just, it, it had this destructive experience on him physically as well as mentally and emotionally. That was Jesus in the wilderness. When Luke records that he was hungry, that, that's the understatement of the century. Jesus was starving. His body was, was beginning to shut down and take care of, of you know, his vital organs so that he could survive. This is the beloved son of God led into the furnace of the struggle. Do you have those moments in your life, not necessarily where you've gone a long time without food, but where you find yourself at your wit's end? Have you had those moments in your life where you say, you know what, it, it, it's unbelievably difficult right now. I don't know how it could get any harder. When I when I look back in my, my life, I, I see a time in my life uh, in the mid-90s where circumstances beyond my control in the ministry setting in which we were in, I found myself facing the greatest struggles I've ever faced in my ministry before or since. And there were moments where our family was, was really struggling with health issues. We were really struggling emotionally. There was just a lot going on with all of us. It was a very dark period. But as I look back on that moment now, at the time, I'm like, Lord, why are you doing this? What is going on? I'm trying to serve you faithfully. I'm trying to, to do the things that you've called me to do. Why, why this struggle? Why this kind of pain? Why this kind of hardship? I was in a congregation where everybody was in pain. Everybody was struggling to a person because of circumstances beyond their control. But now as I look back at it, I say, okay, Lord, I'm beginning to get a glimpse of what you're doing. You are deepening our faith. You are calling us to trust in you and in you alone. And the moments of greatest difficulty are the moments that we have the opportunity to see our faith go into deep places where only God can take us. And so here's Jesus, literally physically at the end, the son of God driven into the wilderness, and now his arch enemy shows up. The person who wants him destroyed beyond everything else steps onto the scene and does just that. He tries to destroy him. Jesus is in the wilderness, and Satan says to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. If you are the Son of God, what's Satan going? He's going right to the heart of the matter. What did God say to Jesus when he came up out of the Jordan? You are my beloved Son. Satan goes, that might not be right. I, don't, I wouldn't treat a son of mine like this. You're starving to death. But look, if you are the son of God, you have all these like Superman powers. Why don't you just make that stone turn into bread? Why don't you just take care of yourself? Because clearly you can't trust your father to take care of you. That's what's being said there. And Jesus responds by saying, it is written. He goes back to the Torah. He goes back to Deuteronomy, what we call Deuteronomy chapter 8, in particular verse 3. And he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus goes back to the promises of his father. He says, This, this is not about physical well being, Satan. This is about trusting in my father. This is about his identifying me as his son and his provision for me as that son. When Jesus, Jesus quotes a passage that God is actually teaching the nation of Israel about why he's giving them manna in the wilderness. He said, I let you be hungry, and then I gave you manna. Why? So that you would know that you can trust in me. There's God in the middle of the maelstrom providing. And what he calls on us is to believe in his provision and to believe in our, our identity In Christ as his children. But Satan doesn't stop there. The second temptation he comes up with, he takes them, and in some way he's able to show them the kingdoms of the world in a moment's time, which means everybody who's ever lived in human history, which means they were looking, we were included in that. There's a flash mob for you. That's pretty amazing. He sees everybody, and then Satan lies to Jesus. To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. No, it hadn't. That's a big fat lie. It's not true. Satan didn't have authority over the world. Satan's only authority is what God allows him to do. Satan is, is, is he's a lackey. Now, he's a powerful lackey, but, but he's not a control. God's in control. But he's lying right out to Jesus. It's been delivered to me. I'll give it to the one whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. <laughs> Satan says, Jesus, just bow the knee. You don't have to go to the cross. All these people, I don't want them. I don't care about them at all. You, you can have them if you want. But you got to worship me. Reject your faith, Jesus, and your Father. Put your trust in yourself. Ignore what your Father said, because you know the smart move is to kneel down right now, real quick. In an instant, it'll be over, and everything else will go just fine. Jesus answered, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What Jesus is saying to Satan is, Satan, how'd you get in this predicament to start with? Oh, yeah, that's right. You refuse to worship God. I'm not going to do that, Satan. Jesus humbles himself before his father, and he he knows where the place of strength is. He knows that the way he's going to come through the maelstrom and come out on the other side is by worshiping his father. But Satan's not quite done. He comes back with a third temptation. Now they go up to the pinnacle on the top of the temple, and they're looking down at Jerusalem, the streets of Jerusalem, and all the people are coming and going and worship. It's like a beehive of activity below them. And Satan says, why don't you throw yourself down if you're the son of God. We're going to come back and press that button one more time. Satan is relentless. You ever wonder why you kind of struggle with the same sin over and over again? It's because Satan knows if he keeps pushing there, he might be able to get you. He might not be able to tempt you with your, with your wealth, but it might be your pride. He might not be able to get at you with your pride, but he can get at you with your family. He might be able to get at you with your family, but he can get at you with sexual sin or anger or whatever it might be. Satan comes back and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he misrepresents scripture. He quotes it correctly. But he misrepresents it. It's written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now that's true, but that doesn't mean you test it out to make sure that God's as good as his word. And Jesus picks up on that right away and Jesus responds. Jesus responds by this. Jesus answered him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I love the, uh, the painting of this experience uh, it's by a French artist. His name is James Tissot. And uh, I, I think it's really, I wish you could see it up close. Uh, but Tissot's picture of Satan just, you know, whispering in Jesus' ear, this, you know, here's, here's what we're going to do. You're going to prove that you're the Son of God. And And Jesus just has his hands folded in prayer. And he's trusting in his Father. And he refuses to give in to temptation. Friends, I can't imagine being Jesus and having that opportunity for for security and self-preservation, to not have to go to the cross, to not have to die for Tom Ricks' sins or for anybody else's sins. That That had to be incredibly appealing, and yet Jesus rejects all of it, and he suffers the temptation for you and for me, knowing that Satan was trying to keep him from the cross, but what the Father was doing through this trial, through this struggle, was to prepare Jesus for just that moment. Satan wants to destroy you, Satan wants to destroy me, he wants to destroy our faith. But if we see it in the proper context, and our identity as children of God who are beloved because we're in Christ, we see it as God taking that opportunity to strengthen us. It's in God giving us the opportunity to trust more in him, to lean more into him, to acknowledge his lordship in our life. It's in those hard moments that we grow, in, and that way we grow exponentially in those hard moments hard moments. Why is it during the Civil War that, and and every historian who studied the Civil War agrees with what I'm about to say, that the brigade from Texas was the best fighting brigade on either side of the conflict, north or south, and there wasn't a close second. The Iron Brigade from the north wasn't a close second to the Texas Brigade. The Texas Brigade never lost a battle in the entire Civil War. They didn't win every battle they fought, but they never lost a battle. Lee said, the Federals never see the backs of my, of my Texas boys. Why is it that they, in fact, and the, I'm going to go down, I'm sorry, I love history. I'm going to go down to the side road. Like, the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg, everybody kind of. if you've been there, you went to Little Round Top and you looked in, and you saw where Chamberlain held the line, but that was not the first left flank of the Union Army. It was actually at a place called Houck's Ridge in Devil's Den, and the Texas Brigade was sent to take that high ground, and they won that battle. They took that high ground. But their commander had been terribly wounded early in the battle, and so there was nobody to lead them over to Little Round Top, which providentially is is good for the United States of America. But these guys never lost. And and their losses, their their casualty rate was was unbelievable. But why did they never lose? It's because since they were born, they grew up in a state that was literally the only wilderness at that point in the United States of America. They grew up in a hostile environment. The natural surroundings tried to kill them, and their enemies tried to kill them day in and day out. And the Texans understood you fight or you die. And if you've been fighting since you were seven, eight, nine years old, by the time you're 20 or 25 years old, you're a pretty good fighter. And if you've been shooting a rifle since you were a little kid to save your life and to save the life of your family, you become a pretty good shot. That's why they were so good, because they were constantly in the struggle. Again, I'm not suggesting that we run out and we look for the struggle and we just, you know, we can't rest until we get into it. But you understand that every time we have that moment of trial, every time we have that moment of temptation, the opportunity is there for us to trust more in God our Father, to to practice our faith, to believe what what God said to the children of Israel in in Deuteronomy 8. "I'm, I'm disciplining you. I'm growing you up in your faith so that you'll keep my commandments. That, that, that you'll follow me, you'll walk in my ways, that's going to be the way of life. This is the classroom of faith. Unless we think this was a one and done for Jesus and he never really suffered temptation like we do, let me very briefly uh, take you to the book of Hebrews and remind you of these words in, in three different chapters. In chapter two, speaking about Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. For because he suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Put your own name in there. Because he's tempted, he can help Tom Ricks who's tempted. Chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, not in ourselves, but in him, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then chapter 5 of Hebrews, just one sentence. Although he was a son, speaking of Jesus, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Don't for a moment believe the lie of Satan. You're suffering because God doesn't love you. If that's true, then God didn't, the Father didn't love Jesus, so we know that's not true. You're suffering because Satan wants to get at you and hurt you, but you're also suffering because God knows in that suffering you'll cry out to him you'll put your trust more deeply in him. The way of growth, the way of following Jesus, the way of becoming more like the teacher is through the trial, it's through the temptation, it's through the struggle where we have to make choices like am I going to trust me or am I going to submit my will to God? Am I going to make myself the center of the universe, the center of self-centeredness above everyone and everything or am I going to worship God and God alone? That's our application today, brothers and sisters. Our application is to embrace God's goal. So I'm going to take us back to Luke 6 as we wrap up. God's goal is what? That the disciple become like the teacher. That our faith deepens. God didn't abandon Jesus to Satan's wiles in the wilderness. God didn't try to starve his son to death uh, because of some, uh, you know, warped view of the world. God was creating the opportunity for his son to, to make his way to the cross so that you could experience the grace of God, so that I could experience the grace of God, that mercy could be ours, but also that there would come a day in 21st century America where there's a little church called Green Tree Community Church of people who suffer real stuff every day, every moment. The opportunity for us to be like our teacher includes loving one another well, caring for one another well as we, as we go through the struggles and the challenges of growing in our faith, understanding our identity as beloved children of God, entering into the furnace of growth, the furnace of struggle with the confidence that our Father loves us and is going to grow us through it. Will you pray with me? Father, we we define good life by (laughs) lack of struggle. Father, we've perhaps bought a false bill of goods. But Lord, in our hearts, we want to follow you. We long to be more like Jesus, even though we know we fall short. So Father, give us a proper understanding of our identity. You have loved us before the foundation of the world. You have loved us in Christ. And that love is secure. It is not going to fail. It is not going to abandon us. But, Father, help us also to understand that, therefore, you allow the testing of our faith because you know what it produces in us, so we become more and more like our teacher. Father, help us to follow Jesus into the maelstrom. We pray in his name. Amen.